Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program references the names of people who have died. How does a playwright fuse form and concept to create a contemporary performance work? What does the future of Indigenous Australian storytelling look like? I'm Dino Dimitriadis, welcome to the fourth episode of Staging the Nation. Welcome to Staging the Nation. We would like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today, and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, we look back through the contemporary Australian canon and shine a light on some of the writers that have grappled with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. In this fourth episode in the series, I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with Wesley Enoch. In a year that marks the 25th anniversary of the first production of the seminal work, The Seven Stages of Grieving. Wes Enoch and Deborah Mailman's The Seven Stages of Grieving is a milestone in Australian theatre history, a highly acclaimed contemporary Indigenous performance text. Appropriating Western forms whilst using traditional storytelling, it gives emotional insight into Murray life. This one-woman show follows the journey of an Aboriginal everywoman as she tells poignant and humorous stories of grief and reconciliation. Powerful, demanding and culturally profound text, The Seven Stages of Grieving is a celebration of Indigenous survival, an invitation to grieve publicly, a time to exercise pain. Wesley Enoch is a writer and director for The Stage. He was the Artistic Director of Queensland Theatre Company from 2010 to 2015 and is the current but soon outgoing Artistic Director at the Sydney Festival. He hails from Stradbroke Island. Previously, Wesley has been the Artistic Director of Quemberger Dara, Indigenous Performing Arts, Artistic Director at Albigiri Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Theatre Cooperative and the Associate Director at Belvoir Street Theatre. He was Creative Consultant, Segment Director and Indigenous Consultant for the 2018 Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. Wesley has written and directed some of Australia's most iconic Indigenous theatre productions, including The Seven Stages of Grieving, The Sunshine, Black Medea, and The Story of the Miracles at Cookie's Table. Other directing credits include The Sapphires, Riverland and Stolen, which toured Australia, London and Tokyo. Wesley has directed for all major theatre companies and I won't even go in to all of those credits. Uh, welcome, beautiful Wesley Enoch. Thanks, Dino. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for uh, being here. It's lovely to do this podcast sitting on a stage in Parramatta. It's particularly profound to be doing this in the 25th anniversary of the first production of The Seven Stages of Grieving. And I want to start with a question that I've asked every playwright who sat in your chair over this series. And something that really interests me is that first moment, that spark, where you decide there could be a play in something. Mm. What was that moment for the seven stages of grieving? Oh, I think there are a little cluster of moments. Mm. Um, Deborah and I were looking for a moment, looking for something to do. In, in many ways, we were wanting to have a child and this notion of what we could do together. 
um, there was a deep love for each other. So this sense of how we could collaborate and make something. Uh, and uh, a friend, Glenn Taylor, kept bringing this puppet show to us, going, <laughs> we should do this puppet show. And we're going, no, we shouldn't do that puppet show. And then my grandmother died and my family went into this mourning process and, we, you know, there's dancing and there's a whole range of things that occurred. And when I came back and told Deb about that experience, she said, there's something in this. Mm. And then it started. we started to look at grieving processes. And when we came upon this juxtaposition of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross mm. and Michael Williams, who had been one of our lecturers, who had talked about the seven phases of Aboriginal history, and when we made that correlation, then we knew there was somewhere, there was a structure that we could uh, explore. Mm. And that's where it started. And what were some of the conversations, I mean, at that point in time that were happening around Indigenous storytelling in Australia? What, what context did that decision sit in? There was a lot of uh, autobiographical uh, making and a history of it through the 80s as well. When you think about Jack Davis, mm. uh, Eva Johnson, um, uh, Bobby Merritt, a whole range of writers who were coming through the 80s looking at either autobiographical or biographical work to write onto the public record a narrative. And then when we get into the 90s, there's this bevy of one-person shows that were coming through from Lily Sainsbury, from Ningali Lawford, you know, who's no mm. longer with us. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, Deborah Cheatham had her one-woman show called White Baptist Abba Fan. There was all <laughs> these one-person shows which were autobiographical. And we were saying, oh, these pieces are being made and getting a lot of work and get, touring a lot, but in fact they, they are about the individual who's performing them. And in fact, we wanted to make a work in response to that, which was a piece that anyone could make. Anyone could could then uh, devise and, and, and create around. And I remember Seven Stages of Grieving being rejected for a playwriting award. And <laughs> when I was talking to one of the judges, I was going, I mean, look, you know, how can we learn from this? And what's, you know, and this particular man said, um, well, we found that it was less of a play and mm. more of a blueprint for performance. And we took that as a kind of badge of honour and said, yeah, that's right, uh, because we think it is less about the writing and more about the the, the live art component of mm. it, this, this lived experience, this other kind of storytelling that comes out in the work, that it's not just about the words that are spoken, but the actions and the song and the movement. And that's, we said, oh, well, then maybe it's not a play. Maybe it's something else. It's, it's interesting, though, mm. uh, 25 years later, it's still being studied at schools all over the place for its text. And you go, wow, bring it on. It re rejected 25 years yeah. ago, <laughs> but now it's kind of studied for its kind of text and what it was trying to achieve. It was interesting, one little story. Yeah. 25 years, Jesus Christ, please help us. I mean, this is a big, <laughs> this is a big thing. Um, but someone came up to me and said, oh, I've just studied seven stages of grieving and so did my father. Wow. And you go, yeah. oh, holy. Okay, okay. And But this whole notion of, you know, suddenly the text mm. in my head went intergenerational. And you go, well, that's some sign of success that what we were exploring in the mid-90s actually has still some potency today. Mm. I mean, we'll talk a lot across this chat about the form of the work, but... Um You've got this framework, like you said, this framework, this sort of architecture for it. But how do you actually start a process then of of, of making 
making this text? Mm. Where, where did you go after that decision? Are you exploring grief and then what's the next step? Well, Deborah and I would sit down and we would just talk. Mm. We would say, what does this form of grief mean and how does it represent this part of um, the seven stages of mm. Aboriginal history? What are we trying to get across? And and also to make it incredibly personal but distance it too so we can actually make um, moments of fiction. Mm. So it just would, we, we would talk and we would talk and then one of us would go away and write up the conversation. Uh, we would then talk about that. And if you like, then we'd say, oh, here's an interesting idea. Let's expand that. And we'd write and write and write. And then we'd come back and say, now, is there a better way of doing this, not in words? And there's one particular story that stands out for me, which is the home story, mm. where we were talking about stolen generations. We were talking about the removal of children and, and especially in assimilationist idea. Um, you know, there's that fantastic Ujuru um, Nunakul uh, uh, poem which says, you know, um, give me a pitcher of wine. When you pour your wine into the river, there was only the river, there was not the wine and the sense of kind of dilution and, and ideas. And we're going, what does that mean for us? And we then said, how do we get the audience to experience that dislocation and sense of grief? You can't tell someone to feel like that. You actually have to let them experience it. And that's where this kind of sand story came from, where we said, well, let's tell the story in images. Let's tell the story by putting this, well, dirt from the grave into this kind of uh, environment and then throw it all away, see what it means when it gets destroyed. And I remember the first night um, we were doing it in Brisbane and that happened and she sweeps away at the end and everything just goes, the mess is everywhere. And um, there's an audible gasp in the audience and Deborah looks up and she says, are you with me? This repeated theme mm. all the way through of that particular work and we went, yep, that's something. It's not just the words, mm. it's actually the actions that make it incredibly human. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that original design concept? Yeah, so Glenn James, Glenn Francis, who changed his name to Glenn James, was the designer on the work and um, Matt, Matt Scott was the lighting designer. Um, Leah King-Smith uh, was a visual artist who helped with a lot of the slides. And so the design became as much about how do we facilitate the things that need to happen. And at the, at the, the cornerstone of it was um, a, a visual metaphor of, of tears. Uh, so the opening image of the play is pretty much the, the woman sitting there in tears, kind of howling in grief. And this idea of how do we continue the tears throughout and we were talking about ice as a great metaphor of when you when it melts you can't put it back together again it's once it's gone you can't reconstruct it you have to construct something new and that all the way through the play this idea of this drip 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 this the thing that becoming solid becoming liquid and crying all the way through the show and um, this idea then of where do where do those tears go and the grave was a, a wonderful kind of starting point for us in that first design. This idea of a pile of earth, which meant a connection to place, but also meant, you know, a, a, a repository for the loved one who had passed away. Um, and in that space too, we, 
the, so the, the block of ice had f- seven ropes that came off it mm. as this idea of the seven stages of, of grieving. And this uh, s- semicircular curved uh, projection space that encompassed the performer and the action, almost like this hug that kind of just, just held everything in place. And inside there was on the ground um, a rectangle, if you like, of black tempera, which is a, a vegetable powder, which you mix up to, to make a paint. You add water to it. And so we used this tempera as, uh, and it had a very deep kind of darkness to it. So it just disappeared. And at the end, edges of it, there was this white fringing to it, literally the white fringe of a black world. And Deborah then, throughout the performance, she had this little white dress on. In fact, the first time was a very long white dress and and eventually, um, because Deborah brought a lot of her clothes in and we went, actually, we should do a short dress, show off her shoulders and all that kind of stuff. And um, as she sat down, as she moved around, the blackness would just form on her. The dress just became filthy. There's this, And this idea too of time passing you cannot reconstruct the ice block you cannot take away the mess that's left behind that this idea that in time you cannot go backwards it can only go forwards and so the sense of what was a beautiful pristine space at the end is messy and disturbed and and there's no way of putting it all back together again in the time so this notion of this um idea of being fringed and being covered in this uh, black blackness uh, was was one of those kind of central metaphors. And there's a moment in, in the show where uh, cleansing, where she leaves the stage and we're left with these images that are, are played out of um, family members. And in the published script, uh, I think that's still there now, there's images from my family photo album that comes from that little box that sits under the stereo, which is a real thing. Mm. And that we we recorded, uh, we put all, we, we, we photographed all those and they go up and there was this wonderful recording of music that played as she went off, showered and came back in a white dress in a messed up world. Mm. Like I wanna start afresh, I wanna start new, but the world mm. is no longer the way it, uh, as mm. I started. The uh, stage anyway. is still in wreckage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this idea that time cannot move backwards, no matter yeah. how much we want to uh, clean the slate mm. and start again, it will never go backwards. Mm. Anyway, that's a long way of talking about the no, design. That's but great. Yeah. And all those beautiful moments <clears throat> where the photographs come out of the suitcase, mm. you know, and there's something so private about those images. And the suitcase is in the grave. Yeah. So that she retrieves the suitcase from the grave, literally the the images of those who have passed away, mm. and she sits down and talks about these photos. Um, and you know, it was interesting when my family came to see the play. Um, they were going, oh, "What? What have you done?" And then she, you know, these these images get kind of get dirtied and destroyed, and and they were furious with yeah. me. And I had to say, "No, they're not the real things. Yeah. They're <laughs> copies." Okay, and they went. Oh, good you know, like this <laughs> but it was uh, that interesting thing where the realities of our world mm. mixes with the fiction of of the theater mm. um and and for many uh, indigenous australians that idea of what is real what is storytelling uh, well 
do we even bother whether it's real or not? The storytelling makes it real. By giving it shape, by giving it words, it makes it real. And um, I remember the, some of the first reviews in Brisbane were, 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 were not complimentary about the piece. Um, we are talking about, you know, 1995. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's still a lot of hangover from the, the National Party Joe Bjorke Peterson era. There's a, there's a whole range of people who, who were basically saying, well, why, why are you trying to make us feel guilty? Why are you trying to do this? And, and you know, um, and it was interesting. By the time we went to Sydney and Melbourne and National Tour and London and Zurich and and came back and did another season in, in Brisbane, all those critics had turned mm. to be going, wow, this is the most amazing piece ever. And it tells you something about often we as as people who who live on the edges of the centre, I'm not going to say the fringe, but we're, we're on, the, on the outer ring. Once we move into the centre, the, we change the centre. We change the way people perceive things as well. Mm. And this wonderful moment of going, here's a play, when in its rawness, in its newness, sometimes the status quo cannot, cannot identify and see the potential of this work. They only see it compared to what precedent teaches us. And so once you then bust open that door and open up the window into somewhere new, you actually can bring a whole lot of critical response, mm. audiences' responses with you. And I think Seven Stages really did that. In, in many ways, a lot of those one-woman shows that were around at the time, you, you got a sense that we don't talk about them as much anymore because they didn't. They were of their time. Mm. And what I've really enjoyed is how audiences and, and readers, students, have made Seven Stages of Grieving a little bit timeless now, how it can keep speaking to them. Mm. But in those early days, you, you really used each showing and phase to, to add muscularity to the work. You were, quite, yeah. you were quite irreverent, in a way, about making sure that you were working at it. Yeah. So our first showing of it was in 1994, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah we did a little showing of it. Um, uh, in 1994 at La Boite, at um, uh, Shock of the New, it was called, the little festival <laughs> of new works, Shock of the New. Um, and so there was this, you know, about half hour version of that and we invited people along, critical voices to come along and we sat down afterwards and they said, this worked and that didn't work and we didn't understand that and what's that about? And we were going to take all that on and go back into the room to to keep developing that. Um Hilary Beaton, who was a writer and dramaturg, then, uh, you know, she would come in and she'd help us, you know, rip things apart. And it's interesting that for, for a lot of people who feel uh, insecure, um, your hand hovers over the racism button and goes, you know, will I press it? Will I press it just to protect myself? And we promised ourselves we wouldn't, that if people had things to say which were in fact based on, you know, racist ideologies or you know a, a very narrow view of the world we would listen to it because often those those things that they're saying are the answers to unasked questions mm. they're asking questions and answering it themselves and we were more interested in the questions and so we'd take their answers and go what question fits with that answer and let's go find what our own answer is and so we keep going back and shaping it so then by the time we premiered in 1995 we're in, we are uh, bringing in 
like Wendy Blacklock, who was running Performing Lines at the time, we said, come on in, Wendy, and see this work. And we helped fly in people to see it. And at the time, the whole show cost us $50,000, which in the mid-90s was, you know, good whack of money. And then we put the same amount aside to look at the development of the work beyond its first season. And so we committed double the budget. Wow to a work mm. saying that this is what I was kept calling our ambassador piece. Once this happens and we can keep, you know, putting it out, mm. it, it will help support the company. This is Kwame Jadar at the time. Mm. And so, so, um, so 1995 happens, everyone comes in, gives us lots of feedback, lots of different, um, we stretch it and push it in different directions. And then it does a bit of a national tour in 96 mm. and then 97 and then it's off. You know, and we also committed to publishing the work in its form that was right for us. So images, descriptions, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And even though it was not a play, by us putting the money up and saying, we will make sure this is published, it actually helped shape the way people perceived the work mm. and could study the work and look at the work as well. Mm. And then it was in the early 2000s where you added the final scene. Yeah. The currently published. Yeah. Text. So I, I, I was, um, I'd come to the Sydney Theatre Company as resident director and there were, because people were studying seven stages mm. in schools and all that kind of stuff. And um, Deborah and I said, oh, well, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. And in in the year 2000 with the walk across the bridge and there's, it actually had given us more sense of hope that reconciliation was possible, that it had moved from a political movement. There's that scene which is, you know, the reconciliation, yeah. the, the breakdown of the sounds, the phonetic idea of wrecking something, conning someone, calling it silly, this nation of, of, of reconciliation. And so... I love that scene so much in the work. Yeah. Oh, the breakdown. Yeah. Oh, I should show you the mind map somewhere. I've got it somewhere. <laughs> There's a book where I just keep writing all my notes and mm. it's there somewhere. It'll end up, you know, somewhere. In the memoirs. Yeah. It'll end up in a trash <laughs> bin somewhere, but, you know, we'll see. But this idea of um, in 2000, there was so much more hope mm. that reconciliation was actually going to occur. And it was so frustrating that, in fact, it didn't. But we were full of hope. And so this moment of walking across the bridge, we had to say, let's let's celebrate that. Let's write new material. And in some respects, that production in 2001 was the letting go of the show. We said, now it's no longer ours. We'll do this. We'll also demonstrate that it can live in different ways. You might want to reconstruct it. You might want to pull it apart. You might want to use it as a blueprint for production and make it different. And so we're demonstrating that you can write new pieces, you can add things in. And in 2001, when that happened, we wrote those extra scenes in and published that version. And, and we said, right, it's over to the world, mm. see what they want to do with it now. And it was interesting. It, it, Shari Sebens has said this because she's going to be directing a production of this later. I think I'm allowed to say that. Yes, it's out there. Is it out there? Yeah. Great. <laughs> um, where she said... In, in many ways, Seven Stages of Grieving has become a, um, uh, a, a rite of passage mm. for performers and for directors, people who have used this production, uh, this, this, this blueprint, to make a production that is uniquely theirs. So, you know, you get Leah Purcell and you get yeah. Wayne Blair and you get uh, Shinoa Dimal mm. and Ursula Jovich and now Shari Sevens mm. and Elaine Crombie and, you know... Uh, 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 
too many to, to name. You know, Lisa Flanagan did mm. it as well at one point, and um, Lisa Marie Siren directed a, a work with a, 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 her students at Eora Center. So it was a, a multi voiced work. And I was going, that wow. idea of freedom um, has actually, I think, meant that the play could keep living. Could, people could keep bringing a new voice to the realization of that work. Mm. I want to go back to that conceptual framework that you talked about, which is in the title and, and also what you said about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Dying. And I, I want to say that I'm not Indigenous and I want to say that for this reason because I want to delve into this into this um, parallel. You, you say that the work parallels the five stages of dying and the seven stages of Indigenous history. The reason I say I'm not Indigenous is because it's really interesting. The more you delve into this work and the more I've delved into it, I've gone that how you see that parallel and sometimes that collision mm. is so dependent on where you're standing. Yeah, yeah. How did you, before we unpack that a bit more, how did you come to that conceptual framework? Um, it, look, you, you follow your nose and your yeah. instinct. You know, that whole idea that um, I think all good art starts with instinct and is followed up by science, you know, uh, uh, skills, uh, you know, structures. And so we're just going, grief. I don't even know what grief is. And if you place yourself in the position of the child, I don't know, I don't know enough information, and go back and look at what it all was or where it came from. And so the idea of grief and grieving was very important. So when we just... you know, stumbled on these references to this Elizabeth Kubler Ross. We had we had no idea. <laughs> you know, she's famous apparently, yeah. but not for us. And we just kind of went and just kind of unpacked it. And went, wow, that's amazing. And we just kept going. Well, what is you know, um, is it denial, isolation, anger? I can't remember the exact denial, order. anger, bargaining, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Yeah, and the sense of saying acceptance was the word, which was very interesting. A sense mm. of a calm moment of bringing things together and going yep i accept that and we went that's that's interesting because reconciliation means the same thing Mm. Uh, idea to reconcile different parts of the world or reconcile uh, different ideas and so Mm. we kind of went oh click and then we went oh i wonder if and we just started to to go back you know and um and look at what those the seven phases of Aboriginal history are. And so if I can remember them in the right order. So dreaming, invasion, genocide, protection, assimilation, self-determination and reconciliation. Mm. And in fact, you know, having this conversation now, um, we're almost in an eighth phase. We're not quite in it or, or through it yet, but we're in the eighth phase, which is about sovereignty. Mm. This notion of not just self-determination, not reconciliation about with white white Australia, but actually this idea of treaty and sovereignty, which means you know a real sense of confidence about where we are. So maybe there's you know uh, 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 another rewrite to happen or another play you know yeah. to come, and the juxtaposition of the seven phases of Aboriginal history and the five stages of dying. And in fact, with the five stages of dying, there's um, uh, denial and isolation, the two things together. So there's like six words there. And when you see the seven phases of Aboriginal history, there are six spaces. And so we put the each word in between the spaces so that you got a sense of how they connected together, like interlocking fingers as they came together. And this this notion of 
in the space of history, you can see the emotional space being taken up. Then once we found the structure, the stories we'd been talking about or stories that had come up for us, the important things, the questions we were asking ourselves, we then started just group them and going, well, I think that's a bargaining one. Mm. Or actually we have nothing now for, for, for anger or we have, you know. Mm-hmm. So we started to just place them in a way. And, you know, it's not, it's not like it's strictly in that order yeah. or whatever, but there's a sense of we're heading to uh, an emotional narrative Mm. of acceptance Mm. which is when she comes back from the cleansing and there's just this moment of uh, the the original ending was nothing nothing i feel nothing Mm. this and you can take that as the double meaning i feel empty inside i feel bereft or actually i feel released i don't feel the bitterness or the anger or the denial i feel kind of uh, Mm. released from that uh, and so those structures were all in place. Mm. Absolutely. And the reason I said that about the standpoint is because there are scenes that you, whether you're reading the work or you're you're watching the production, where you're conscious of those, you know, mm. the stages and you're thinking about and if you know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work. And, and there are times where you have a complete collision. I mean, there's a scene in the work called Bargaining, mm. which, is a, which is a direct stage in her model of of dying but what you get in the bargaining scene in in the seven stages of grieving is not how you might conceptualize bargaining in the in the five stages of dying there's this kind of extraordinary sequence that plays out where you know what i mean in terms of that scene with the the um the woodwork scene the woodwork scene yeah the nails oh yeah yeah, where where she's making the um, for sale sign. sign yeah 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 well, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? You kind of go, you, the way that that image then plays out mm. is not the way that you're expecting this framework of bargaining to kind of play out. Yeah. Look, and I think that the what is the bargaining, you know, mm. is as much do I sell you my land? Do mm. I sell you my most sacred thing so I can actually survive? And that the bargaining is done from lots of different perspectives. It's interesting that when, when, when we were starting, mm. we were also saying that um, a lot of our inspiration was based on uh, the, the uh, connection and interaction of the art forms, that we didn't want to be one thing or the other, but all together, that the story is the dance, is the song, is the image, is the painting, is the all of these things kind of come together in this interaction of performance, mm. that that was a cultural perspective. And so, you know, when we're talking about bargaining, you go, well, what am I giving you and what am I getting back in return is really what a bar- bargaining yeah. is, this kind of bartering for um, you give me my life if I give you my land is the only real um, exchange of currency that we're talking about. Mm. And, and, yeah, it, it, and also it's, it's, it's like the, um, the Captain Cook one as well, you know, 1788, where we just say, you can't park your ship there, move yeah, on, totally. where we just keep inverting the frame all the time as well. Mm. And it's interesting, in this year, in 2020, which was the 250th anniversary of Cook arriving, and the the conversation, which was quite advanced now, but we'd never got to see it, was the view from the ship, but the view from the shore. Mm. And I remember in 1986 watching a, a film called Barbecue Area, which did that inversion and said, what if, in fact, 
the whole world was seen from a black point of view, an Aboriginal point of view, how would we be living our life? Mm. And that kind of thing of imagine just saying, you can't park here, mate, move on, you know, you'll get fined, I'll fine you. And there's a kind of um, a wonderful irony and just keep turning and turning mm. the points of view, which we know that comedy comes from this, the unexpected viewpoint becoming the dominant one. And so people just get these moments of relief. Um, often, often I say this as a director as well, but uh, this idea of what I call the rubber band, you know, you pull an audience to to an extreme and you just let them go and they can go to the other extreme as quickly as that. In the same way that I think that, um, you know, they talk about genius and madness being closely aligned. They're not ends of uh, a continuum that is linear, but in fact, they're like a circle and that the movement of one extreme to the other is very close. You just move like, like they're just two points on a circle rather than two points at the end of each line. And so for me, this whole play goes through this kind of roller coaster of mm. up and down and round and round. And when you feel the most down is when we also lift you up. Mm. Uh, when you feel the most open is the moment we go in and, you know, compress your heart. The moment that you uh, are sobbing, we say, and now have a laugh. Yeah. And you feel that very kind of human quality that the accumulation of the play is like uh, we had this image of moving through the performance with a like a coolerman and you're just picking up the experiences and putting them in there. The order doesn't always matter, but you're picking up the experiences and in the end you've got this whole big full coolerman of experiences and then you feel what it's like. You feel the weight of them. I think your your reference to kind of shifting the lens is what 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 I mean by that collision. Yeah. You know, there's that, that, that very bargaining scene, you go, oh, there's, some, there's something happening with, with timber there. And, and if you think about bargaining in the griefing process, it's such a personal wrestle. Mm, mm. But then suddenly that scene, the lens just goes, oof, yeah. it widens. And you start thinking, bargaining with complete loss of land and country, it's, it's, it's this constant lens shifting and expanding and contracting that I think the work does so beautifully. Well, in, in the original production too, so she nails this, mm. this like cross, a cross yes. that you're going to put onto the grave and it's backlit so you can't see what's written on it. Yeah. And then she steps back and then the lights come up on the front and you see it saying for sale on the grave. And then you just keep getting these images and juxtapositions back and forward, which mm. keeps everyone on their toes, mm. I think. Hey, let's talk about that that potential eighth stage, mm. or if you were to if so, if you were going to add that scene fragments collection of fragments to the work, what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, this conversation's come up because you know the plays around and stuff, and I was going, actually, I think it's a totally different performance. Mm. I think it's almost the the sister show to Seven Stages of Grieving. It's the idea of what's it look like when we're solid and formed and kind of, you know, we're, we're not bargaining, we're not grieving, we're actually here. You know, there's that moment in the, the Daniel York story, the, the idea of the march, when, you know, they're actually talking about we're not fighting, we're not shouting, we're grieving. Mm. It's almost the opposite of that, saying we're not grieving, we are here, you know, you must see us. And in many ways, I think that Seven Stages, 
look, we could keep fiddling with it forever, but that's someone else's job, you know. I'm an old man, you know. <laughs> Let young people do it. But this idea of going, um, what's what's the sister piece, the companion piece to it? Uh, and I think it's got to do a lot more with dance and movement. I think it's got something to do with – it's the equivalent of the Maoris doing – an hour-long kind of haka and dance, mm. and you go where you just go, whoa, you know, it's inescapable the power and the and the cultural authority of mm. that statement, and I think that's what sovereignty is now. Mm. Do you think we're at a place to write that that play, that version? Well, uh, I mean. By extension, the question is, were we in the right place to write Seven Stages mm. of Grieving? And I go, no, I don't think we were, mm. but we did it. Mm. And I think that, um, if anything, uh, making performances, making works of art like this actually shift the debate and the discussion. It shifts us into um, things. And this is this is a weird and wonderful thing to, to do, but people, when they talk about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, every now and then make a little mistake in saying, yes, the Seven Stages of Grieving, and you go... That's Elizabeth Cooper rushing it. It's actually five. Yeah. But something stuck in their head because that that's kind of in there in the in 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 the zeitgeist now. Mm. So it's almost like what's the work that we're gonna make now that will have repercussions in twenty five years from now? And I think it's gotta do with sovereignty and sense of strength. Mm. You talked before about this being a you know, we talked a lot about this being an active text. Mm. You know, there was something very intentional about not making it a more traditional theatre-based work, but making it more in the territory of contemporary performance where it can... It, it not only mixes art forms, but can actually evolve. And as you said, there's there's so many Indigenous artists who have, who have moved through this work yeah. in all sorts of forms. Um, how... How open are you? How How much of a blueprint is it? How much do you think people can play with it? Oh, God. Um, I haven't stopped a production of it yet. Yeah. You know, mm. and uh, I love the freedom of it all. I mean, it's interesting. I've stopped the filming of it. Um, it's interesting because when Deborah and I were talking about it at one point, we are saying, oh, should we film it? Should we actually make a film so that it can go into schools? And it's weird because film becomes a, a capturing in time, a moment, mm. and it becomes the authority if – Here's Deborah Malman doing Seven Stages of Grieving. I don't need to see it in the theatre anymore. And it becomes set in stone. Mm. And so at times I'll say, no, don't let anyone film it that for long periods of time that it's going to be exposed and all that kind of stuff because it's actually the interaction that I love and that new artists have brought new life to the work too. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's not that I don't care, but the person who wrote that work, well, the people, Deborah and I, mm. We're just not the same people. Mm. You know, we are 25 years on. And in many ways, when I was 25, when this work was being mm. conceived and made, we were railing against the status quo and and the establishment. And you can't have anyone more establishment than me and Deborah Malman at the mm. moment. You know, like I'm running the bloody <laughs> Sydney Festival and she's a multi-award-winning mm. artist. We are in the centre and so what I invite people to do is those who are on the edges to come in and challenge it, you know, give it a good rip apart and see if it speaks to you. And what I've loved about seeing new productions of it is people just take it in different directions. 
but the audiences always get the the essence of the work because yeah. it's it's an open text for that interpretation yeah i'd love to widen it out a little bit and talk about where you think indigenous storytelling is now and where you would like it to go i guess on a much bigger mm. canvas well, before I was talking about this kind of biographical and autobiographical, mm. and in fact, the, the the number of playwrights who have written one play, you know, multiple hands worth, you know, big groups, people who've written two plays, it shrinks. Anyone writ- who's written more than five plays, mm. you can pretty much count them in one hand, you know, because there's people run out of material and the biographical and the autobiographical, the writing onto the public record, a story that has gone untold, is sometimes the the thing that motivates a writer. But what I've been interested in the last, let's say, 10 years, 15 years, is writers kind of um, graduating from that. So even watching, uh, let's say, uh, Jane Harrison, Jane Harrison writing Stolen back in the, in the mid-late 90s, um, and then graduating most recently to The Visitors, mm. which is moving from the biographical, and a lot of it uh, biographical from from true stories, through to lots of different works, and The Visitors being a conceptualization of the arrival of the First Fleet and an Indigenous um, uh, council meeting to argue about whether they should be let in or not. And you can just see this kind of growth of our imaginations growing. And I think Nakia Louie being a really key example of that too. So you get black is the new, uh, white is the new black. Uh, black is the new white? White is the new black? I get those mixed up. Uh, you, you get that work, which is basically the most David Williamson kind of structure of mm. of ideas and status quo. And you get blacky, blacky brown. Yeah. But she had this whole kind of biographical work that she was doing early on, especially when she was working a lot at Belvoir Street. And you're watching this emergence mm. of a kind of creative thinking, a fictional world that is helping us create a vocabulary beyond our lived experience. Someone like Maine Wyatt, yeah. you know, City of Gold, extraordinary work where he takes one experience he has and then extrapolates and moves and shapes it and then creates a whole work, which I think move the nation yeah because it was the right thing at the right time and we're seeing writers now who are going beyond their own lived experience and creating a vocabulary for change for the whole nation to move forward and that's exciting mm-hmm. we are having a we're moving from a backward looking backward as in um the mining of history and we're looking forward and imagining a future and that's a very positive thing. I think that's something that the last 50 years or more, like say it's from the 67 referendum, there's a whole idea we're, we're now reaping the benefits mm. of a forward-looking, change-obsessed, uh, progressive world for, for First Nations Australians. And what do we need to do to make space for more of those players and more of those voices? Uh, there's two things here. I think... Um, Number one, you can't make space. That space has to be taken. Yeah. You know, you, there's something about building the resilience to go, I need to be heard. Mm. So, uh, you know, we don't want to make hothouse flowers that go, please give me and then I'll just, you know, uh, I'll be indebted to you. Totally. It, you need people who are powerful about that because they'll also shift through the um, the status quo. Mm. 
I, I think also what we're seeing is uh, a taming of a lot of um, First Nations voices. And I, I, I think I'm part of it, you know. We're, we're worried about how we sell things. We're, you know, what's, what should we have in? What shouldn't we have in? Who's a reasonable voice? Who's, who's a group of people who look like me? You know, all of that stuff goes on and I'm part of that whole system. And I'm really keen for younger audience, younger writers and makers to go, nope, this is what we're doing now. And for us to all to get excited and back it. So it's not about making spaces, mm. but going, you, you're the one. How do we, how yeah. do we back you? Um, and to give them their own sense of sovereignty and, and ownership of it all. I think there's two things, and they've all got to do with resources. Yeah. That the resourcing of a culturally safe space in which people can express and learn their skills on their terms, and then it's actually then how to back them by giving them spaces that they can be resilient in to push forward. And those two things go together. Safety and resilience go together hand in hand all the time. And I think that often what we're doing is a lot of the conversation is about cultural safety because, yes, it should be there, but we also need a resilience to push forward or, as I said before, we'll have mm. these kind of hothouse flowers. So, so I mean, if, if anyone who's listening out there who goes, what can I do? Just go to more. Yeah. Go When you see that there's a, a First Nations production on, go to it. Mm. Tell your friends to go to it. And love it, hate it be indifferent to it, but just turn up. Turn up. Yeah. Because at some point that's what we need more of. You you don't get a career like mine or a career like um, Deborah's or uh, Andrea James. Uh, you don't get these careers if people go, it has to be perfect. You know, it has to be progress. Let's get into the progress of it more. Mm. Great. To go back to Elizabeth for a moment. Oh, Lizzie, my Lizzie. friend Lizzie. To uh, sort of steal her her first little her first little stage, perhaps an audacious question: What do you think we're most in denial about as a nation in the colonial sense of yeah. that term? Yeah, we're, we're we're in denial that we are an elder on the world stage. Mm. We keep we love as a nation to think of ourselves as young and lucky, and you go get over yourself. You know, we are the oldest longest continuous culture on earth. That's what Australia is. Sure, those who have come in the last 200 years or 250 years, sure, great, you, you know, that's fine. But the more you accept and in kind of, and show gratitude to the landscape that has shaped this, mm. this, uh, these cultures. And, you know, it's interesting, the, the fires have been a very interesting conversation this last, well, almost 12 months ago now. The fires, where what came out of that for me was actually Aboriginal people have been using fire as a tool mm. in this country for millennia and it's the country is built to burn. So if you are a, a neglectful, if you don't know how to burn, if you're scared of fire, if you um, don't engage with your community and your space and your land, of course it's going to come back and attack you. And it's terrible. You get such loss of life and animal life and, and old trees burn, which never should burn. And in fact, these kind of fires are so bad for the environment. And it's because of human neglect that they haven't learnt the lesson from Aboriginal Australia. And it's because they think that, oh, I've been on this country for four generations. You know, I'm a fifth generation farmer. Mm. So therefore I really respect and love the land. You go, 
well, let's talk to a culture that's been here for 5,000 generations and understand what that means and the knowledges that are there. Instead of thinking that Aboriginal Australia is in deficit to the country, think of it as we are the, the repository of true knowledge and understanding of place and go, let's embrace that. Let's really embrace what that means rather than thinking that um, we we who have been here, I, I love this image actually, the, an elder told me this, that a moth that only lives for three days sits on a tree and says, this tree is perfect and it hasn't ever moved, it has never changed, and then that moth dies. <laughs> but its perspective is mm. of three days, so you can't take it seriously. No. But you actually look at the tree that's lived there for 300 years and go, I've sat on this mountain for 300 years and it hasn't moved or shifted or changed. The tree dies and you can't take that perspective because the mountain is older. Mm. And then you talk to the mountain and the mountain says, I have been here for millennia and millennia and I have seen the rivers come and go. I have seen the night change. I have seen you know, people come and go and I am not old enough to judge. Mm. And so that's what we need to get to. We have to have the wisdom of land more than the, what we think is the wisdom of the moth. Mm. Totally. What did you learn about yourself making Seven Stages of Grieving and watching its evolution over the last 25 years? It, it, at the beginning, there was a real healing process. It was a sense of telling stories. Um, there was also, we didn't know what we didn't know. So we were just going, ah, let's just do this. We were just kind of blindly going through and um, imagining what we wanted to do. Um, and looking at it now, it was like uh, it wasn't really us. You know, uh, I don't want to be too oogie boogie about it, but this sense of going, there's at times, what the Greeks would call inspiration, the divine breath, this notion of something fills you and it takes you in a direction and the world recognises it and off it goes. It's often not yours. It's from somewhere else. And what I've loved is that Seven Stages of Grieving continues to teach me to be humble because, you know, you go, God knows where those ideas come from again, mm. you know, and you stay humble and stay connected. There's this, there's this whole thing about... Um, the, the process of dreaming stories, new dreaming as uh, often referred to, is that when you are humble and sit in country that you can connect to the past. That, that for, often for a lot of Western societies, time is considered the constant, that time is the, the straight line that you can't go back. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of Aboriginal cultures, land is the constant and time is just a layering up in space on that land. So if you sit in one place, you can connect from the present day to the moment of creation. And if you are open to it, that moment of creation sparks and that you then have to recognize what that's telling you about the world. Um, and there's a connection to this very beginning of storytelling. And so, you know, so this whole idea of seven stages being a humbling moment mm. that goes, who am I to tell someone else what they, how they got inspired or where they wanted to go with the work or what, what happened for you? And, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. Oh, doesn't matter. Let's have a go at it, mm. you know. 
Has it helped you move through your grief? I think um, the grief's one of those things that I realise that even if you deal with it, you hold the scars of it. You know, it heals over, but you have to carry the memory of it along the way as well. So, you know, a, a lot's happened. The loss of my grandmother was the beginning point. Um, the loss, like uh, uh, loss, rebirth, uh, mother figures are a kind of constant throughout my whole writing career anyway. Mm. Like, you know, from Black Medea and Sunshine Club to a Cookie's Table, which is all about the death and the passing on of story. I mean, there's there's something that that's... I'm still working it out. You know, they say this thing about playwrights where they basically tell the same story over and over and over yeah. again, just in different <laughs> ways. That's what I'm working through. So I don't think I, I'm finished with grief. I think that uh, there's all, there's an embracing of it, not a joy in grief, but a sense of saying, "Yep, I'm I'm coming to a point of perhaps acceptance." Mm. Beautiful. Well, on that gorgeous note. I think we should wrap our discussion. Okay. Thank you so much for that chat. Thanks, Dino. Really that was appreciate great. it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Staging the Nation. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Station the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatre's Parramatta. Executive producer, Joanne Key. Producer and technical director, Daniel Holsworth. Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. And this week's guest was Wesley Enoch. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening.